This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny St. George, Utah. That's right, I'm recording this episode from the welcoming confines of my hotel in St. George, Utah, where I've spent the last few days participating in a triathlon camp put on by the good folks at Balanced Start Multisport, an operation based in Salt Lake City. Triathlon training camps are something that I have participated in as an athlete many times and hope to be involved with as a coach in the coming years as part of my responsibilities with life sport coaching. All the camps that I've been to have been great experiences from the perspective of getting a great block of training in and from being able to get some really high quality coaching on different aspects of swimming, biking, and running. And this one is really no different. Now, not all camps are created equal. And I have had the chance to attend some really good ones, some not so great ones, and some in between. I'm not sure yet where this one will fall on that spectrum as I'm only halfway done as I record this, but one thing is for sure, the location here in St. George is simply spectacular. Now, living in Colorado, I'm of course accustomed to mountain vistas and even the occasional red rose outcroppings and plains broken up by mesas and valleys cut into the landscape by creeks and rivers. But... Utah takes all of this to a whole different level that has to be seen to really be understood. I'm taking some drone and GoPro footage while I'm here, and I'm going to put together a video review of this camp to publish once I get home. Hopefully, some of the beauty of this place will come through there, but if not, I assure you it is worth your while to visit sometime. Now, of course, St. George is also the host of this year's 70.3 World Championships, a race that I have personally qualified for and was looking forward to. I say was because today I got my first good look at the run course that can only be described as diabolical. Whoever the race organizers are that came up with this must really hate triathletes. Essentially, I could describe this course as running out of town, up a mountain, down the other side, then turning around to come back. It is simply insane and not something I'm really looking forward to. Best of all, I get to do it twice, what with my somewhat now questionable decision to sign up for the 70.3 in just a few short weeks on May the 1st. Should I survive, I will report back and let you know how much I'm looking forward to the World's Championships after that. On the show today, I have a guest joining me to discuss the medical issue for this episode. Gastric upset in its various forms plagues many a triathlete during races and can be the reason why even the best laid plans can come undone. There are several reasons to explain why this happens, but my guest believes that one has been overlooked, and that's going to be coming up shortly. Later, I have a conversation with the man behind the Slow Twitch Triathlon website, Dan Emfield. Dan has an incredible story that involves developing the first triathlon wetsuit and the first dedicated triathlon bike, and culminates with Slow Twitch, one of the go-to websites for many in our sport. He tells me how it all happened in a very entertaining segment that you'll hear a little bit later on. 
Best of all, if you enjoy the interview with Dan, there's more that can be found on my Patreon site, where a bonus interview with him is available to all of my supporters. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to this interview, as well as the other bonus segments that have already been added, including my interview with Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson, among others. I hope that you'll take a look and consider it. You could find information on how to subscribe and access that content at patreon.com forward slash Tridoc Podcast. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Tridoc Podcast. And as always, thank you in advance for even considering. It is often said that the fourth discipline of triathlon is nutrition, and there's good reason for that. Those athletes who have figured out how to fuel efficiently and effectively are better suited to perform over the course of a 70.3 or longer event than are those who have still yet to figure out how best to get in the calories required for their body to perform for the duration. Unfortunately, there are many reasons why nutrition often remains elusive, even for those who have a lot of experience in the sport. One of those is the development of gastric upset that frequently befalls triathletes when performing in races, even though it might not be an issue for them during training. There are many reasons that this occurs, and I have covered several of them on this very podcast in the past. Dr. Patrick Wilson is an associate professor of exercise science and directs the Human Performance Laboratory at Old Dominion University. He earned a PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Minnesota and completed postdoctoral training in sports nutrition at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Dr. Wilson has authored over 55 scientific articles that span the disciplines of exercise science, sports nutrition, and health. He's also the author of the book, The Athlete's Gut, The Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition, and Stomach Distress. Well, Dr. Wilson believes that a determinant of gastric upset for endurance athletes may be found above the neck, and he has written extensively on the subject. I've asked him to join me today on the podcast so that we can explore his findings on how anxiety can have an important role in sabotaging a triathlete's best laid race day nutrition plans. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Dr. Wilson. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the invite to the TriDoc Podcast. Well, I, I, you know, uh, Maddie Pesh, who's my research intern, came across several of your articles. We read them with great interest, and we thought this is a subject that so many triathletes struggle with, and we definitely wanted to get your insights. But let's begin first with kind of a brief rundown of the usual culprits that we think about when we think about, you know, stomach problems in triathletes. And a lot of this is based on some pretty reasonable research. So let's begin first with this concept of decreased blood flow to the gut that we see in athletes when they're performing at a certain level of intensity. Yeah. So the gastrointestinal system obviously is an organ system like any other that requires blood flow and oxygen and nutrients to function. And with the stresses of exercise, that poses a enormous challenge for the guts to get enough of that blood flow to really function optimally. So as somebody starts exercising, they're going to divert a significant proportion of their blood flow away from the gut to the skeletal muscle, obviously, to, to feel that, to provide oxygen. But especially under hot conditions, you're going to have extra blood flow going to the skin and the periphery of the body to cool. So there's just less sort of resources to go around, and there's more competition for those resources. So what can happen is a, a significant reduction in gut blood flow, particularly in the heat, and then also when somebody is potentially dehydrated, because that's going to 
cause an extra loss of uh, blood volume. So lack of blood flow can cause changes in motility or function of the gut. It can lead to a kind of a loosening, loosening of the gut barrier, which can perhaps trigger um, sort of a systemic inflammatory response. So yeah, that's definitely one possibility or one major possibility when it comes to gut issues is this change in gut blood flow. So that also kind of correlates with very high intensity short exercise elicits more symptoms and very long prolonged stuff elicits more symptoms. So it kind of matches nicely to degree with that hypothesis around gut blood flow reductions is that they both tend to cause major reductions in, in gut blood flow. I thought that the uh, the review articles on this were particularly fascinating in terms of how this uh, theory came to be, uh, including some of the review articles you wrote. Looking back, this was one of the first theories uh, that came back. Uh, gosh, it, it looks like it was uh, maybe 100 years ago where, where people would look at patients who had um, fistulas. And so there would be gastric mucosa that would actually be visible at the site of the skin. And they would note that when they were doing something like exercise or whatever, the color of that gastric mucosa would change because there would be a pallor because decreased blood flow would be going to that tissue, which I, I just thought was fascinating and, and a, a kind of a little history of medicine kind of thing. I'm a bit of a geek on that kind of stuff. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then of course that has borne out in, in other studies that have been done more recently. Um, now I know even outside of the blood flow issue, there are other causes of decreased gastric emptying and motility in endurance athletes. Could you talk a little bit about those? So you could look at a, a host of things um, in terms of the changes in gut function, like delayed gastric emptying. Sometimes it can be due to nutritional choices. You know, easy examples would be things like consuming too much of a hypertonic beverage or a concentrated sports beverage. You know, there's there's a handful of studies that have clearly shown if you ingest, you know, a, a sports drink or a juice or a cola that has a pretty high carbohydrate concentration compared to a standard sports drink, you tend to get more symptoms of bloating, fullness, nausea. You know, the threshold is going to vary from person to person, uh, but anything above 10% carbohydrates, if you're ingesting that at a pretty high rate, then it's much more likely you're going to have problems from that, especially if you're not habituated to doing that. And it's not just carbohydrates, right? I mean, we know that high carbohydrates definitely can slow gastric emptying, but there are other nutritional components like fats and proteins, which also have an effect or an impact on gastric emptying. Could you comment on those? Correct. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that regulates gastric emptying is just the caloric load in the stomach or caloric density and fats, you know, coming at kind of nine kcals per gram. Uh, is higher than both carbohydrates and protein. So, you know, we know from studies that high fat, high calorie meals of anything is probably going to delay gastric emptying the most. So part of the recommendation for a lot of sports organizations like the American College of Sports Medicine to say, you know, before a big event or a training session, it's probably not wise to ingest a super fatty rich meal, you know, within a couple hours before your, your competition or your session. Now, if you're eating like four or five hours beforehand, it probably honestly doesn't make that much of a difference. Uh, so long as the meal isn't, you know, something crazy like 1500, you know, calories. Uh, but yeah, being a little bit aware of the amount of fat, um, protein, and then also 
fiber can stay in the stomach a bit longer. So that's one of the major reasons why it's often recommended to not excessively consume fiber immediately before or during you know, these longer events because, you know, it can slow down gastric emptying. Now it's interesting. You talk about the fatty meal in advance of a competition. I I will tell you, you know, following social media, dealing with athletes uh, who maybe don't have as much experience, people who are getting ready to do an Ironman ask questions all the time about what they should eat as nutrition during an Ironman. And they often get a response that they should eat whatever they can tolerate, which is not necessarily out of, you know, the realm of, you know, of sanity, but that often turns into people packing peanut butter sandwiches or chips, and these things are high in fat content. And uh, while it may be something that seems palatable at the time, uh, I always worry that it's going to cause them problems because of what you just talked about, this delay in gastric emptying and then the bloating that goes with it and problems with uh, getting the actual calories into them that they need. Yeah, I think it's it's dependent on obviously the rate of ingestion of any food and then the person's typical dietary patterns. We know that people who eat more fats are better able to empty that fat from their stomach and digest it. Similarly, we know people who eat a lot of carb are generally better at emptying from that uh, from their stomach in comparison to people who don't eat a lot of carb. So there's a there's a multitude of factors that kind of modify the risk for any given person, but I agree. I mean, I think people should be aware of kind of the relative amounts of these macronutrients that you're consuming and, you know, try and target um, foods that they know they have experience with that they've tried before. And for most higher level athletes or people who are, you know, trying to perform at their best, finish at their best time, generally carbohydrate is the limiting fuel during the activity itself. So ingesting fat in large amounts for most events doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because most of that ingested fat is not going to be utilized for fuel anyways, whereas the ingested carbohydrate is actually going to be oxidized. So that's really interesting because uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't follow up on that a little bit because a couple episodes ago, I had a dietitian and uh, Alan Lim, who is a food scientist, who is the founder of Scratch Labs. And we had a long conversation about uh, the athletes who go keto, keto during their training, and then switch back to carbohydrates uh, in order to race. And we reviewed a lot of the evidence and the evidence was pretty clear that not only is, is utilizing that strategy, not a good idea for a triathlon. It does not improve performance, but it actually impairs their ability to utilize carbohydrates on race day because they, their body shifts away from metabolizing carbohydrates. And then when they go to race day, they can't just switch back easily. And something you just said, uh, kind of dovetails on that. Uh, if you're not eating carbohydrates regularly, then your stomach's not able to handle them and, and you may have motility issues related to that on race day. Could, uh, is that something I can kind of extrapolate to the person who might be considering using a keto diet during training and then switching to carbohydrates on race day might have that problem? Yeah, that's a possibility. I, I think the studies on how long it takes the gut to adapt to a new diet in terms of the gastrointestinal adaptations are, are not super clear because most of them are done at rest with non-athletes. Um, there's not a lot of them, but we do see gastric emptying changes and changes in potentially absorption of carbohydrates, at least in animal, animals, not human studies. Uh, that happened fairly quickly within a few days um, of switching to a high carbohydrate diet. So 
I think if someone was going kind of ketogenic or high fat and they wanted to also fuel with carbohydrate during the event, if they switched a few days in advance and really up the carbohydrate intake, I think they could probably mitigate some of those issues. You know, to what extent? It, it's hard to say because honestly, there just aren't a lot of studies on that in terms of the gastrointestinal changes. Now, there's definitely right. studies on the performance changes and the fuel use changes that you alluded to, but the actual gastrointestinal changes are, are less well understood. So. Uh, okay. That's a you know a, a good point. And, and one last factor that I wanted to touch on, and uh, this this goes back to the usual kind of ca- culprits for gastric upset in triathletes, and that's the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or um, aspirin or many of the other ones out there, naproxen. Uh, how do those medications cause problems for endurance athletes if they're being used on a regular basis? Yeah, so they're COX inhibitors. So those COX enzymes, you know, they're involved in a variety of things in uh, producing a variety of substances in your body that are, you know, useful. I mean, sometimes if you've got too much inflammation going on in an injury, it's it's nice to take some of those uh, NSAIDs to t- dampen down that inflammation and help deal with the pain. But the downside of that is that those COX enzymes that those medications are interfering with also um, have implications for your gut. So some of the Substances produced through those COX enzymes protect the gut. So if you're taking those medications, you lose some of that gut protection. So that can manifest as, you know, GI pain, cramping, bleeding. And there's one study I recall that was done with marathoners, not triathletes, but they observationally kind of looked at, you know, individuals who are using analgesics, primarily NSAIDs compared to those who are not, and the rates of GI cramping were were way higher among those who were using the analgesics. And, and dropouts from those GI cramps during the race were significantly higher as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely an issue here of dosage, amount, and timing, but for those athletes who are using relatively large dosages prior to the event or during the event, there's definitely a risk of having gastrointestinal side effects that they should be aware of. Okay. So those are all the things we usually think of traditionally. Uh, You mentioned, of course, the environment. Heat is a big one. Uh, But you have postulated that anxiety is also a player here, a psychological state. Why did you come to believe that? And what evidence do we have that supports that theory? I think anecdotally, I just, you know, hearing athletes' stories over the years, my own experiences as a basketball player, cross-country runner, just kind of feeling like I wasn't able to eat as much prior to real competition as as compared to practice situations. And as I started to do more research on the nutritional causes of GI issues in athletes, I just, you know, out of curiosity, tried to look to see what um, data were there, research were there to kind of evaluate the stress and anxiety uh, factors in, in GI distress and was surprised that there was basically little to nothing, you know, even uh, a few years ago. So that kind of was a impetus for me to do some preliminary studies just to see how, you know, well, these things correlate with one another. And then based off of that, maybe trying to come up with strategies that athletes can use to mitigate some of these GI uh, induced problems that come from you know, anxiety and stress. You know, we've heard a lot about how the gastrointestinal system is somehow 
connected to the nervous system. Uh, is this kind of an example of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a tight connection between your brain, your your central nervous system, and your gut. I mean, the activity of the you know the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems have major impacts on what's happening in your gut from how fast things empty from your stomach to the amount of contraction of the smooth muscles. So yeah, we know from studies that if you, you know, sever those uh, neurons from the autonomic nervous system to the gut, that's going to have a, you know, a major impact on, on how the, uh, the gut functions. But even outside of the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, divisions of the autonomic nervous system, we also have this embedded nervous system within the gut itself that responds to the local environment that changes kind of the rate of muscular contractions and how quickly things are being propelled through the gut. It's kind of called the second brain is, is a nickname for it is this whole basically separate nervous system that's embedded within the gut itself. So uh, yeah, there, there's a connection between the brain, the spinal cord and your, your gut, but there's also this separate uh, second brain that resides within the gut itself. Uh, and, you know, we know from animal studies, human studies, that when you make people anxious or stressed, that it changes the function of the gut, largely mediated through changes in the activity of these various nervous systems. Now, a lot of the studies that uh, you've uh, cited in your work and even the studies that you've done as part of your work have shown that anxiety does, in fact, have a role here. Uh, what's the physiologic basis for it? Like, wh why would nervousness cause stomach problems? Yeah, I mean, you can see a couple of things. The brain under stressful conditions or fearful conditions or when you're anxious uh, will release corticotropin-releasing uh, factor. CRF, or sometimes abbreviated CRH. And that is going to be uh, basically a hormone that can modulate the uh, nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branches. Those are your kind of, you know, your rest and digest versus your uh, um, flight or uh, fight response type branches. And we, so we know that basically these hormones being secreted like CRH are going to kind of turn up or turn down the stress response. And when you turn up the stress response, basically your sympathetic nervous system gets activated. Uh, what we see happen is delays in stomach emptying. And then sometimes in the large intestine, kind of the, the latter half of your gut, you see actually the opposite effect, an increase in activity. So you kind of think about functionally what that would do. Delays in gastric emptying, right? We're thinking about fullness, bloating, nausea, Whereas the other half in your large intestine increases in activity can correlate to urges to have to use the restroom or loose stools or that sort of thing. Now it's dependent on the magnitude of the response. So, you know, mild stress and anxiety, you know, you're probably not going to have significant changes, but someone who is experiencing large increases in stress and anxiety, you know, it's kind of a proportional response. Now, how long does the effect last? Because, you know, a lot of people have nerves leading up to a race, but once the race gets underway, the nerves kind of go away. They kind of focus on the task at hand. Is this an effect that lasts for many hours? That's a good question. The most recent study we did, we looked at basically people's uh, trait anxiety and their state anxiety. So trait would be kind of how you typically feel your day-to-day -day life. And then uh, state anxiety would be kind of in the moment. And we looked at how both of those correlated with symptoms during endurance races. 
And what we found is that, um, you know, they both correlated, both your kind of background level anxiety and then also your anxiety on the morning of a race also correlated with certain GI symptoms, particularly nausea, reflux, uh, and cramping, abdominal cramping or stomach cramping. Cramping. Now, interestingly, the morning of uh, anxiety seemed to be more strongly correlated with some of those GI symptoms. So, you know, it, it seems like if someone is anxious on the morning of a race, that that can translate later on to GI issues potentially throughout the course of that race. Now, these are survey studies, they're retrospective in terms of the GI symptoms. So we need to do a lot more work to kind of really look at the actual uh, sort of temporal changes. Now, uh, when these GI uh, symptoms are really occurring during the race itself. Uh, but at this point, we've, we've at least established that, you know, there is a connection between what a person's feeling on the morning of a race and the symptoms that they end up reporting uh, that they experience during the race itself. Yeah, you've established the association, but you haven't found the causality yet. And I, I gather you have plans to do some kind of prospective randomized trials to try and sort that out. Yeah, we are actually doing a couple of studies right now. Uh, COVID has been an interesting thing with research in that we aren't able to do much in the lab right now. So I've had a couple of students transition to doing virtual projects. One of them is in, involving basically different types of breathing and their effects on anxiety and GI symptoms in endurance athletes, runners. So uh, we're looking at basically a four week slow deep breathing intervention versus kind of a normal uh, type breathing cadence uh, versus a control group and seeing whether or not you know, there's any differences here in not only anxiety, but uh, in the GI symptoms that people oftentimes associate with higher levels of anxiety. So uh, the student who's doing that is getting pretty close to being done with recruitment. So, I mean, hopefully we'll have results on that in the next maybe half a year coming out, uh, depending on how long that takes to get through peer review. I have another ma a master's student who is looking at relaxing music is a way to dampen down the anxiety that people experience and see if that translates to less GI symptoms during their training. Um, so we'll have some data here, hopefully in the next half a year to a year that's coming out. Uh, these are virtual projects. They're not looking really precisely at the physiology or the mechanisms. We're kind of limited in terms of what we can do by distance, but uh, it'll be some interesting data nonetheless. Now, uh, you know, there's a lot of culprits. We talked about a bunch of things before. Anxiety is clearly one more. Uh, based on your research, how big a problem is anxiety as, as you know, one of these things? Yeah, there's a lot of correlates of GI issues in athletes, anything from age to experience to how intensely they're exercising. So in observational studies, rarely do you see correlations get above like a 0.3. So, you know, for people who aren't aware of size of correlation, I mean, anything less than a 0.5 is we typically kind of think of as a modest size. I mean, it's, it's not a very strong association, but that's true of basically every predictor of GI distress is because uh, these symptoms tend to be multifactorial and there's rarely, you know, one thing that causes the issue for people. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, I think the importance here is that for a subset of athletes, for those who have the highest levels of anxiety, that's where you're going to get most of the problems. So I think it's maybe 20% of endurance athletes, something around that, where really they have higher levels of anxiety and stress. 
and that's the 20% or so that's probably most likely to benefit from some sort of intervention that targets stress and anxiety. So I think it's it's for a subset of athletes for, you know, probably two-thirds of athletes, it may not be much of an issue. It's, it's really 20%, maybe a third that really could potentially benefit from uh, finding a way to reduce some of the stress and anxiety that they're experiencing. And you wrote in one of your papers something that I thought was really very uh, true and 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 very much on the nose, and that was that, you know, it, it's hard to tell sometimes, is the anxiety precipitating the gastric distress or is the gastric distress playing a role in the athlete's anxiety? Because it's definitely a two-way street. Yeah. I mean, if you're chronically having gut issues, you don't feel good you have nausea, you have bloating, uh, that's probably also likely to make you feel anxious, right? Yeah, so, and you're going to be worried about it on race day for sure. Yeah. yeah. So there's a uh, bi-directional relationship there that is tough to tease out for sure. I, I just want to finish with something, you know, you just mentioned a little bit earlier about something that athletes can do to kind of address this problem with potentially using music or some other kind of calming measures. Uh, for now, before that research comes out, uh, what can athletes who suffer from this, what can they do to try and make this better? Or what can they do to try and have a more successful race day? Yeah, I think seeking out maybe somebody who has experience or expertise in, in trying to manage anxiety, if it's a day-to-day issue for you, like it's, it's you know, every day or most days you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious. I think trying to get that under control through the help of professional hopefully would have downstream effects with respect to your gut issues. Uh, if you're an athlete that has more just morning of or race day jitters, and that's primarily your problem, then, you know, trying some low risk strategies on the morning of a race, whether it be slow, deep breathing, relaxing music, uh, those types of things. Again, they're not, I would say, highly evidence-based in terms of reducing GI symptoms in athletes right now. We don't have the data to say that it's going to work, but they're low risk. So I think it's worth trying and seeing whether or not there's a benefit. Um, but again, hopefully we'll have a clearer picture about what are actually some efficacious strategies athletes can use in the next few years as we take some of these studies um, that have been observational and try and implement more actual clinical trials and randomized experiments to see what's the best way to approach this. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. I think it's also important to note that just because we don't have evidence that these things work for the GI symptoms, we do know that those strategies work to decrease anxiety. And so, you know, while we're waiting on the evidence to show that, you know, yes, maybe music works also to decrease gastric upset, we know that that kind of strategy works to decrease anxiety. And so if this is something that affects you as an athlete, you have nothing to lose by trying it on the morning of a race. Uh, same thing for those uh, meditative type things like deep breathing and other uh, types of strategies. Uh, yeah. Dr. Wilson, I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. Incredibly informative. Uh, I've really enjoyed reading your work on this and uh, I look forward to some more of the prospective uh, answer or you know um, treatment-based uh, studies that you alluded to a little bit earlier in the conversation. Again, thank you so much for your time today and I really appreciate it. Uh, your contribution to the podcast. For sure. Enjoy the conversation.
If you've been in triathlon for any length of time, my guest today really needs no introduction. However, I'm going to give him one anyways. Dan Emfield truly is the embodiment of an entrepreneur in the world of multi-sport. As one of the first manufacturers of the triathlon-specific wetsuit in 1987 and the triathlon-specific racing bike in 1989. His original designs were manufactured by Quintana Roo, which he founded in 1987. He sold that company in 1995 to Saucony, but managed the company's bicycle division until June of 1999. He then left to start slowtwitch.com, a go-to website for triathletes for anything and everything related to the sport. Dan has been inducted into the Triathlete Magazine Hall of Fame, the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame, and has received the World Open Water Swimming Association's Lifetime Achievement Award and was named by Inside Triathlon as one of the 10 most influential people in the United States Triathlon on two different occasions. He received Interbikes Triathlon Industry Leader of the Year Award in 2014, and this year won a Lifetime Achievement Award from USAT. He serves on the board of directors of Triathlon Business International and is a former board member of USAT, USA Triathlon, but today I am delighted to have him for a short while on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome, Dan, and thanks so much for being here. Uh, pleasure is all mine. So Dan, you have been around triathlon, uh, you're, you're a decade my senior, and yet it seems like you've been around for so much longer because you've been everywhere and done everything. Um, you know, tell us about some of the things that you've seen change for the better and worse over the, your years of involvement in the sport. Well, I, I think that, uh, the original spirit of triathlon, um, is sort of always hangs around. Uh, but it's sometimes eclipsed by more conventional um, sports uh, imperatives like governance and uh, and, and uh, attachment to consensus behavior. Um, the Wild West uh, of the of the late seventies and the and the early nineteen eighties. Um, I think is sometimes found in offshoots of triathlon like. Uh, gravel bike triathlons and things like that. Um, uh, and so I, I think that the, the part of the part of triathlon that, that drew me in the beginning, uh, is a, is a part that I still, uh, uh am always on the hunt for, uh, I'm, I'm always looking for the frontiers of triathlon. Uh, because that was what compelled me in, the, uh, in 1981 when I raced Kona for the first time. Uh, having said that, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's without doubt that if you don't uh, draw a circle around your activity and attach some sort of uh, structure to it, uh, that... Uh, that, that the activity will always be, um, will just remain on the periphery and will never grow. And so unless you have, you know, some sort of way for race directors to receive affordable race insurance uh, and, you know, some set of commonly understood rules uh, and things like that, uh, and, and a, uh, a way for officials a way to have officials to enforce the rules. If that's if that's how you roll as a race director, then, it's, a, uh, it's a double-edged sword of success, right? I mean, you want yeah. you want some, you know when something's good, it's going to succeed. But with that success comes the growth and all of those pains that you're alluding to. Yeah, and and uh, and so I guess what I like about 
the space triathlon is in right now is is that we sort of have both. Um, we we have a we have a sport that uh, is is governable, and we're fortunate that we have a, a very strong national governing body in the United States. And generally, the governing bodies in the in the major triathlon countries are strong. Um, and and then we also have a frontier of multi sport. Uh, so, you know, you get swim run and, and you get gravel triathlons and stuff, stuff like that. And I, it, and you know, that's to me, that's, that's what compels me because I think I'm a, a nonconformist by personality type. Uh, and so, so those kinds of things appeal to me. So you, you sort of have it all with triathlons. So I'm, uh, I'm what I've been doing this since the 1970s, uh, feels like I started yesterday. Uh, I did my first triathlon when I was, I did my first three sport multi-sport endurance race in 19, I don't know, 76 or 77. Uh, and I just had my 64th birthday. Uh, so from, you know, the age of what, 21 or two or something like that until now, uh, I've been doing this. Um, I'm just as excited about it today as I was then. Uh, so whatever it is about multi-sport, uh, it, it's, it's for me, uh, it seems to be doing something right. Yeah, I, I concur. I, I haven't been in the sport nearly as long as you, but for the 20 plus years that I've been involved, uh, I find the thing that got me interested at first, the variety, the atmosphere, the really the personality of the, of, of the people who tend to be drawn to it is what keeps me going back. And then as you're in the sport longer and start to really understand how to compete and how to train, it, you, you start to see whole new avenues that uh, open up to you. And even as you age and as you, you know, maybe don't get the same kinds of success, triathlon and, and the other versions of multi-sport just have this allure. I think that single sport, um, you know, running or cycling just while they're all you know, entertaining and, and have a draw. I, I, I've just been amazed at how triathlon can, can keep people interested and involved. And, uh, like you said, with the way that it's branched out and come to embrace all of these other kinds of aspects like aquathon or, uh, gravel and all this other, uh, ways of looking at it. I think it's, it's only to its, uh, uh enhance its allure and in, in continue its success. Um, I'm interested in uh, the history of uh, Quintana Roo. It's uh, clearly, um, you know, a fixture in our sport, uh, and and you know, uh, much of that has to do with you and 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 your history in bringing it to the fore. Uh, tell me about what got you to devote your efforts to bringing that company from basically, you know, the ground up and getting it to where it is even today. Well, look, uh, I'm, uh, I, I hope I don't offend anybody, uh, but I suspect I might, uh, but I'm, I'm just going to give you the, the, you know, my background, uh, not, not as an industrialist, but as a, as a person. Um, when I was, I was a mess when I was in my twenties. Uh, I didn't vote. I didn't uh, like I had a bad credit score. I mean, there's nothing about me as a person that was, uh, appealing from, uh, you know, as a member of, 
of society other than, you know, I didn't, you know, hurt people or, uh, you know, torture animals. Um, I mean, I was a nice guy, but I wasn't a, I was just sort of this like, traveling itinerant multi-sport person who would try to earn enough money to buy a plane ticket to go to Mexico and climb up a volcano or something like that. So that, that was my life. Um, I sort of fell into this thing of, um, uh, well, I was at a race uh, and I was sort of a bad pro triathlete. Uh, that is a not very successful pro triathlete. Um, and, uh, it was a very, very cold race. We were standing on snow, getting ready for the gun to go, you know, so we're all in our speedos, you know, standing in the snow. And there was a couple of guys there, Scott Tinley, one of them who were surfers and they swam in their surfing wetsuit just because it was so darn cold. And, uh, and I thought, okay, fine. Finally, this is the day I beat Scott out of the water. And, um, and I didn't beat Scott out of the water. And as a matter of fact, he beat me in the water by as much or more than he should have beaten me by. And I just had this, you know, I just sort of curious. I had this curiosity over if you can wear a surf wetsuit and not do badly in the water, uh, how much better could you do if you optimize that wetsuit for surface swimming? And so, you know, very long story short, that was how QR got started. But, uh, I didn't, I hadn't really, I didn't have any, there wasn't any notion that uh, I would make a business out of it. I just had this, you know, curiosity about the technology and I made a wetsuit and I, and I swam a hundred yards in it and I saw the future uh, because I swam seven seconds faster than I would normally swim a hundred yards in this new wetsuit that I had designed that uh, with the help of a, of a surf wetsuit company that, you know, helped me procure the rubber and make the designs and all of that. Uh, and so, okay, now I'm in the business because I can sell these things. And, and honest to gosh, Jeff, the, my only ambition, I figured out if I could sell 40 wetsuits a month, I could continue to buy airplane tickets to Mexico and take my bike down there and do crazy single solo multi-sport things. That was it. Uh, but then, you know, it's like, well, somebody's got to make these wetsuits. So I need to buy sewing machines. I need to buy cutting machines. I need to buy raw materials. I need to hire people. And that was the beginning, not just of my transformation as an industrialist, but as my transformation as a man. Because at a certain point, you must grow up. Uh, you must become a functional member of society, right? So, so I, I'm, I sort of became this, and I'm still this iconoclast personally by, uh, by temperament. Uh, but, um, uh, someone who employs people, someone who signs payroll checks, someone who, votes, pays taxes, you know, has a good credit score and all of that sort of stuff, you know, moving from, uh, you know, flop house to homeowner, you know, all, that whole transformation that we go through. I got a late start in life, but it was really triathlon and specifically, uh, uh, you know, this sort of falling backward into being a manufacturer 
um, that, 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 that grew me, uh, as, as a man, as, as well as, uh, uh, a, a change of profession for me. Well, um, and well then, apparently, know, apparently you well, haven't been on the slow twitch forums long enough because, you know, that, that really didn't offend anybody because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I just had to interject for a second because it's, it's always amazing to me how, you know, the confluence of opportunity and, uh, innovation will, result in these kinds of things. And you, you took advantage of that. You, you happen to be in exactly the right place with the right idea. And, you know, you, you took that and ran with it. So, so good on you. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it was transformational in that way, both for the sport and for you as an individual. So I, you know, I, I see nothing but positive out of that, but, I, but I well, do, look, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, I've always felt like I was, you know, there's this line in the movie Patton where George C. Scott talks about having the Third Army during the Battle of the Bulge and saying I was in exactly the right place at exactly the right time in history with exactly the, the tool at my disposal. And I, and I feel like that. Uh, I've always felt like that, uh, where I found exactly the right sport at exactly the right time and, you know, and with wetsuits and bikes and all that. Um, but I, I guess, you know, upon reflection, it's always exactly the right time. If you just keep your eyes open today is exactly the right time. I just don't know what it's the exact right time for. Um, but it's the right time for whoever keeps his eyes open and the, you know, my, my genius has always been, the genius of being just an average guy. Um, if you have just average fat of the bell curve, cheeseburger tastes, then you have the same taste as your audience has. And if you, and that allows you to make a product that your audience will like, because uh, if you like it, they'll like it because your tastes are their tastes. Um, and that's always been, uh, really the thing, you know, whatever successes I've had, it's, it's always been in spite of my weaknesses and because I have the strength of being just a very average person. Um, uh, and I, and I recognize the obvious. Um, so, you know, what the wetsuit was obvious, the tri-bike was obvious. These were obvious, uh, designs. Uh, it did not take uh, any genius to figure this out. It, it was just stuff that was looking at you. And, and the, it was just a question of whether you were willing to just look back, look it back in the face and do something about it. Well, thankfully you looked back and you saw it. So, so tell me then how you, you went from wetsuits to bikes. Cause that's a pretty big leap. Well, it is. Um, but consider the time, uh, 1987 was when the wetsuit came out. That's when I started to, I, I made my first wetsuit in 1986. I started to market the wetsuits in 19, early, like over the winter of 1987. Um, the other thing that happened in 1987, very same time, exact same time, was the Scott DH Aerobar. Uh, so those designs, inventions, whatever, uh, they came out simultaneously. 
So uh, uh, I was still, you know, I, I bought this old van for 700 bucks and I would drive around from race to race and I'd sell my wetsuits out of the van. And, and then, you know, when the, when the, when the field was getting ready to, when the, you know, the pro, the pro men starts in five minutes, you know, and I'm, I'm closing the van up, locking it, you know, hiding the key inside my wetsuit somewhere, running to the start. And more than once I would, the gun would go off and I'm running to the starting line after selling my last wetsuit out of the van <laughs> um, to, to jump in and, you know, see if I could attach to the pack. But then I would get out of the water and I'd get on my bike and, uh, and then well, here's all these arrow bars. So um, because I'm now in the industry um, and I'm meeting other people in the industry, I got myself set arrow bars pretty early on. And I realized that we all had to jack around our bikes. Uh, it took us about a year to figure out how to ride the darn things. Um, but within a year of 1987, by 1988, uh, we're, we all have found the setback seat posts that you can turn around to pitch you forward, or we had some bike maker weld us some sort of a dog leg forward seat post or something like that. So by 1988, the triathlon position, we knew what it was. We all knew what it was. And so then it's just, uh, why am I riding this road bike? And my late great genius friend, Steve Head of Head Wheels, I was with him at a race the first time he ever laid his eyes on arrow bars. And he's another guy uh, that just saw stuff, noticed stuff. And he looked at it, and he was silent for a minute, and he said, that's a front recumbent. That should be illegal. And, of course, he was right. Aero bars turned road race bikes into front recumbents. Now, they weren't made illegal because the cycling community really didn't understand what those bars were. And for 20 years, they didn't understand what those bars were. And in many ways, they still don't understand what these bars are. But our bikes that we ride are front recumbents. And because they're front recumbents, the geometry of the bicycle, of the road race bicycle, cannot be optimized for front recumbent riding. Therefore, um, a different geometry is optimized for that style of bike riding. And the only thing I did was connect lines from the bottom bracket to where it was we all rode our bikes. Um, that is to say, I drew a, a direct line from the bottom bracket up to your seat where you wanted your saddle to sit. And I drew, you know, a sort of a more appropriate line um, to where the arrow bar pads were going to be. And, and I stuck the front wheel underneath the rider so that his, his weight uh, was sort of over the bike instead of all on the front wheel. And that's it. That's it. That's the tri bike. <laughs> so people came after me, Gerard Vrooman, Phil White, Cervello, people like that. They made the tri bike elegant. Um, but in terms of tri bike geometry, that's, that's all there was to it. It was just obvious stuff, but it was so unconventional that the bike industry, which was so tied to convention, was unwilling to take that step. 
Um, so I took the step. And I didn't know two spits about making bikes. Uh, I had to learn in a hurry. I mean, I, had, I didn't know anything about business. I remember when I sold my business. I sold it to Saucony. And, and the, the, the guy who was in charge of the act said, okay, uh, I'm going to call you Tuesday and, uh, and we need, uh, you know, your SG&A and your gross margins and your, you know, EBITDA for the last three years. Blah, 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 blah. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. I had to run to Barnes and Noble to get, you know, business for dummy. And so, you know, th- four months later, I'm in s- standing in front of, you know, a board of directors and investment bankers because it's a public company. And I'm going, yes, well, our SGNA is la la la, which allowed us to enjoy an EBITDA of, uh, you know, 14% year over year. I didn't know what any of that stuff was four months previously. Um, and so I was the ultimate just make it up as you go along, you know, trying to get my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours in, you know, 30 minutes at a time. And, um, and it, nobody had imposter syndrome more than I had it. Um, and, and I just basically survived. I just, you know, people ask, well, how do you, how do you be successful? You survive yourself for the first five years. If you can just survive yourself, you'll, you'll do fine. But really that's what it was. That's a pretty amazing story. Um, and, and I mean, just, amazing how the brand has survived and gone on and had such incredible success uh, really a testament to the origins of the tri bike and its durability within our sport uh, tell me a little bit then on how you came to create slow twitch and and how it's become such an incredible success well it was another example of the obvious um, i was shown the internet uh, around, I don't know, June of 1993. And the online community at that time was, uh, you were using that news groups. And so there was one called Rex Sport Triathlon. And that's where we all were. And I would hang out there. And, and someone turned me on to this notion of the World Wide Web, right? Which was pretty new back then. And there was one web browser and it was called Mosaic. And it was built by a college student, Mark Andreessen, who went on to found Netscape. But he was just a college student at University of Illinois, Urbana. And uh, you got Mosaic by telnetting it. And so you had to get telnet somehow. And you had, so I downloaded Mosaic via telnet and I opened it up and it was just this black screen, right? That's the World Wide Web, just black screen, black vacant screen. And for a month, I would, you know, look at this screen and nothing there. And basically what I was doing was the internet version of looking at my television without the power turned on. Um, and then it, 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 I finally found was turned on to the, I had to put a web address in there. So I found out what a random web address was and I stuck it in there and it, the page loaded and, you know, hyperlinks and all that. And I saw the future. And uh, I said, well, this is just too cool. So I said to the folks at QR, because uh, I owned it still at that point, I said, look, I'm 
gonna, I'm gonna be at home. And I'm gonna be at home until I learn how to write HTML code because I, I tried all the local call, I tried every place to find someone who teach it to me. No one knew how, no one knew HTML code. Uh, but Mark Andreessen had the foresight and to my good luck, you could pull up the source code of a page. So I would have two computers, two of these little Mac cubes, right? And the website I was looking at was on one and the source code was on the other. And I, oh, IMG equals SRC equals blah, blah, blah. Uh, that must be the code, that the tag that pulls up an image. And sure enough, it was. And so I taught myself HTML and I published RueWorld.com uh, in January of 1994. I believe we beat Specialized by one month. We were the first commercial bike company to have a site up on the internet. Um, and so I knew back in 1993 that the this was the future. But I was too busy running a manufacturing. I was too busy being an industrialist to be a web guy. Uh, and so uh, after I, uh, basically I left my company in, Jan in June of 1999. And I thought, okay, well, I don't really have to work for a couple of years. But... It took me about a week to just get antsy. And by three weeks later, slowtwitch.com was launched. So that was that. Well, I'm going to go back to something you said a little bit earlier and just contest the notion that you're just an average guy and suggest that uh, perhaps all of those awards and uh, everything else that uh, you've received are, are, are very much evidence to the contrary and certainly well worth it because you've accomplished uh, a lot more than just an average person would. So thank you. Thank you for doing all of it because it's made a huge difference to our sport. And um, uh, it's really just been a pleasure talking to you today about some of it, just some of it. And for all of my listeners, uh, Dan's going to be uh, on uh, a little bit of a bonus segment that I'm going to record with him and will be available on my Patreon site. So I hope that you'll consider becoming a supporter so that you can hear that. But Dan, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today on the TriDoc Podcast. This has been uh, a really entertaining and informative conversation. The pleasure has been mine. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doz at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and getting some of the bonus content that's on there right now. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. 
This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train hard.